Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. My name is Nick. It's my privilege to kick off the Ruth series. We're starting our Ruth series through the month of July, um, and I'm super excited. We're calling it God in the Shadows, um, and it's even interesting. As Ali was up here, um, shadows can kind of have a, a bit of a mixed idea for people. Uh, like for kids, kids are not big fans of shadows, right? Let's be honest. If you're a small child and you see a shadow, you're like, ah, what's happening? Um, but if you're walking in a desert place and the first thing you see is a tree, the one thing you want to be is in the shadows. The amazing thing about God working in the shadows and the book of Ruth is that there's, there's no mention of God in the book of Ruth other than the characters themselves talking about God. Uh, there isn't a sense of which God was doing this and God was doing that. It was almost like God is working as a stagehand behind the scenes. The, the book of Ruth is an amazing story. It's only four chapters, but it, it's so well written. I just want to encourage you to, to just bathe in it, marinate in the book of Ruth as we go through it these next couple of weeks. Part of the reason we're going through the book of Ruth is because of what was happening in Ruth at the time was a lot of terrible things. Uh, there was death and there was famine and uh, people were desperate. And like now we're, we're sitting in a place of we don't know what to do with COVID-19. Our whole world has been turned upside down in terms, of, um, in terms of racism and injustice. There's economic upheaval and things kind of go up and down. And, and also there's so much political backbiting going on within the church of God. There's, there's so many dark things happening. And the, the challenge for us is when the darkness is full and complete, we can't see anything. It's only dark. But when there's a tiny little bit of light, you can see a shadow. And if you can see a shadow, what do you know? There's actually something there. You may not see the substance of it right now, but you know it's there because the shadow doesn't exist in and of itself. And so when we look at the book of Ruth, we're going to look at how God works behind the scenes to accomplish his purposes. We're going to see some amazing words in the book of Ruth, like coincidentally and just at the right time, and it just so happened that, and we'll see how God is working all of these things. But the first verse in the book of Ruth starts like this, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine. And judges were um, military leaders that at the time God would raise up because Israel was going through a very bad and rebellious stage. And what would happen is Israel would rebel, and they would call out to God, and God would raise up a military champion like Samson, like Gideon, like Deborah, and that would restore them for a while, and then they would fall back into the cycle of sin. Repentance. God sends a champion. There's, there's restoration. And so this... Uh, Ruth, the book of Ruth is a wonderful contrast to the book of Judges, which, which uh, it's the book of Judges and then the book of Ruth. And the book of Judges always has this saying in it, people did what was right in their own sight. Whatever they wanted to do, people did in the book of Judges. And the book of Ruth is the exact opposite of that. The book of Ruth talks about what it's like to not choose what is comfortable for you, to do what is not right in your own sight. And so the beginning of this book, there's a man called Abimelech, and he has a wife, and his wife's name is Naomi, and they have two sons whose names I can't pronounce, and they are in the middle of a famine, and so what happens is they decide to go to Moab. 
And Moab is the enemy of Israel. But they decide, okay, there's, there's nothing here for us. They move down to Moab. The two sons take on wives, and the wives are Moabites. And these are enemies of Israel. And uh, what happens is Naomi's husband dies, and her two sons die. And so she's left destitute. Uh, there's a collection of three widows here, and we pick up the story in the book of Ruth from chapter, from chapter 1, verse 7. So she set out from the place, she's talking about Naomi, so she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. So now they've heard that actually the famine in Judah is over, um, and so there's a famine here in Moab, so let's go back to Judah. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go, return, each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with, with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lift up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters, why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, that even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they're grown? Would you therefore remain unmarried? What she's saying to them is like, guys, even if I were to get married right now, and even if right now I was to get pregnant, would you just wait for these guys to be old enough for you to marry? No, no, you've got to return. Don't come with me back to Israel. Stay in Moab. No, my daughters, it is exceedingly bitter for me for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone against me. Then they lifted up their voices, and they wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Naomi's talking to Ruth about Orpah. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So we're going to look at three characters in chapter 1. Now, two of them are key and main characters, and they will be throughout the whole book of Ruth. Um, and that will be Naomi and Ruth. But one of them is a, a supporting actor, and, and that is Orpah. And if I say Oprah, please forgive me, but it's, but it's Orpah. So we're going to learn three things from these characters basically this evening. We're going to learn how we deal with times of darkness, what our responses are in times of darkness where we feel like God isn't working in the shadows. And the thing that we're going to learn from Naomi is she's going to offer the gift of bluntness, and she's going to offer a kiss of release. What we're going to learn from Orpah is that she is going to offer a kiss of convenience. And what we're going to learn from Ruth is that she's going to model the embrace of sacrifice. Now, we know our families are complex, right? In-laws are even more complex. Can I get an amen, right? Those of you that are married? Okay, you got your, old, your own stuff to carry when you're part of a family. Talk about family origins and dealing with all that. Now you get a whole bunch of stuff that's added to you. So when Karen and I were first married... Um, I come from a Greek home, 
And those of you that are Mediterranean in any way, it's similar in some ways to Mexican culture. It's very communal. It's very loud. A lot of it is based around food and family. Um, and so the first time Karen was going to come, we'd, we'd already been married. She was going to come to a meal. My wife asked me if the foreigner was going to come. My, my mother, sorry, sorry. My, my mother asked me if the foreigner was going to come. So I'm like, wow, that's not a good way to start this whole kind of relationship with the whole mother-in-law vibe. Then my grandmother used to call Karen Barbara. I don't know why. Some may say it was a Freudian slip uh, because Barbara is actually the word for barbarian, which is the word for not a Greek, you know? And so constantly my mom would say, is the barbarian, is the foreigner coming to eat? And Karen would say, because of her culture, she would want to offer something. She'd say, hey, you know, I'm coming for a meal. What would you like me to bring? And my mother would always say to me, tell her nothing. We're Greek. Like, that should make total sense to Karen, why she shouldn't bring anything. But one day, we finished our lunch, and, um, and which it's, it's a very patriarchal culture, the Greek culture. And so the men get up from the table, and they go, and they sit down in the, din- in the sitting room uh, in order to receive their dessert. And the ladies pick up all the dishes, and they go to the kitchen, and they wash the dishes, okay? This is, this is what I grew up in. And... I go and sit down with the men because that's what I've always done. And my wife comes out of the kitchen. She says, you, in here. So I, I go to the kitchen and I start washing dishes with the rest of the ladies. So I'm there with my mom, with my grandma and with Karen, um, who is at this stage very pregnant. And if anyone should not be washing dishes, it's Karen. And then my mom walks into the kitchen and she says, you, come here, outside. <laughs> so now... So now I'm a little stuck here. Uh, I don't know what to do. So I go outside, okay, and then Karen stands at the door like this. She doesn't say anything. She just stands there like this. And I'm, I'm back in the kitchen. And then, and then eventually my dad comes in and saves the day and helps us wash the dishes, which, which meant, you know, it, it was solved. But, but I'm, I'm telling you the story to say that in-laws are complicated and complex, But the interesting thing about this story is that there is a widow with two daughter-in-laws that don't want to leave her. There is something deep and significant about this. Let me just say this. If my mother went anywhere, Karen wouldn't want to go with her. There is no way she would say, where you go, I will go, and where you eat, I will eat. She'd be like, where you eating, I'm going there, you know? (laughs) The background and context of the book of Ruth is that they are returning to Bethlehem, and Bethlehem is called the house of bread. There's something quite ironic in that when you're trying to escape a famine and you're going to a place called the house of bread. There's also something we've got to realize in Scripture when it comes to famines, and famines are used in two ways. Famines are judgments by God, but they are also tools that God uses to restore people back to himself. And we see that through Jacob. We see that through Joseph. We see that through the story of Elijah and even the story of the prodigal son, because there was a famine in the land. And when the prodigal son was in the pigsty, there was no food for him to eat. So he started eating that and ultimately returned. Famines are things that God uses to get his people's attention. And... um, And I I want to make something very clear about Moabites and Israelites. Not only were Moabites 
enemies of Israel, but particularly Moabite women were considered to be dangerous, heartless seductresses. And Moabite women, when in Israel, were in danger of being violated because they were part of a hated race. And so one of the secondary applications of the book of Ruth that we're going to see is our responsibility to the poor, our responsibility to the alien, our responsibility to the widow, and then also how we deal with issues of race with, when it comes to hatred just because you happen to be a Moabite. Make sense? So here they are. Uh, Naomi has allowed them to intermarry. And I, I, let me tell you, there are books and books of commentaries about whether these men died because they intermarried, uh, whether all this death and famine was because there wasn't the separation between Israel and Moab. But I want to ultimately say this. There are no answers for why this happened. And I think there's a lesson for us in this. Because so often we waste so much energy on saying, why is this happening? As opposed to, God, what are you doing in me? So in terms of everything, all the turmoil that's happening in our country and around the world, and I understand, I'm like, why, why is this happening is a valid question, but it saps our energy from being able to answer the more important question, God, what are you doing in me? God, what are you doing in us? God, what are you building? What are you reminding us of? And how are we to respond in all of this? The book of Ruth has no answers for why things are happening. The book of Judges previous to the book of Ruth has no problem telling you exactly why something is happening. It was because Israel did this, that God did this, and it's a direct punishment, and unless you do this, that will happen. Well, the book of Ruth is not like that. It doesn't tell us why it's a dark situation. It only shows us the God in the shadows working behind it to see something beautiful come out of it. Now, returning to Jerusalem, I mean, to Bethlehem is a big deal. This is not just a brief visit. They've been there for 10 years. Now, when I was here for 10 years, I've been in the States. It is now, what is it, 2020? I've been here 18 years. Okay, wow, that's a long time. I don't know what centigrade is anymore. I mean, I know technically what it is, but I don't know what 20 degrees centigrade feels like anymore. I know what 68 feels like. I know what 72 feels like. I don't know so much, like when I walk, I don't walk in kilometers anymore. I've transitioned to miles. Uh, believe it or not, I don't follow rugby anymore. I follow football. And so in, in 10 years, a lot has changed about the way in which they relate to each other, the way in which they relate to God. They've built their whole home. This is a big decision to return back to a place where there is nothing for you. But Naomi hears that, that now there's food, and so she returns, but she's not returning with hope. It's, this is kind of the best of two bad choices. Do I stay here in Moab or do I go back to Bethlehem where I have nothing, where I am economically and socially an outcast? I can't remarry. I'm too old. She's already told her that. My sons are dead, so there's no one to provide for me. There's no light at the end of the tunnel. There isn't the sense of real hope that Naomi has. It says, God has spoken to me, and we are going to go back to Bethlehem. No, there just is a sense of bitter inevitability that this is kind of the best of two bad choices that I'm going to make. She's desperate. She has no inheritance of which to live. She's basically going home to die with no expectation of salvation, which is why she says to her daughters-in-law, don't come with me. At least 
at least you'll be able to go to your mother's house if you stay in Moab. We see the first response in dark times, which is Naomi's gift of bluntness. Both women automatically start to go back with her. There, there isn't even a question, right? So Naomi says, I'm going to go back to Bethlehem. I'm going to go back to Judah. And they, and they just start following her. And you might be in this kind of circumstance. You might have grown up in a Christian home. You might have gone to a Christian school. You might be in a sense where you might be thinking, did I ever make a decision to follow? Did I ever literally sit down and count the cost and say, no, this is, no, this is what I'm choosing? And so Naomi makes it very, very clear for Orpah and for Ruth, this is going to be difficult. If you come back with me, you have to count the cost. She will not allow them to blindly follow her, and she informs them of the, of, of the stark realities of returning. When we talk to people about the amazing faith that we have in Jesus Christ, when we talk to people about the fact that, that our sins have been forgiven, that we have oneness with God, that in the midst of chaos and anxiety, we can have peace, do we also mention that there will be a cross that we need to bear? Do we also mention that part of the sweetness of His presence is found in trial and suffering? Do we mention that? Do we talk about that? And that's one of the things that maybe needs to be stirred up as, as part of what is happening is people are asking questions about eternity, they're asking questions about life. One of the things we need to do is be as blunt as Naomi said, this is going to be difficult. Now, is it going to be the best possible thing you have ever imagined? Yes, but that doesn't mean it won't be without difficulty. Jesus does this countless times. He reminds his disciples that you're going to have to leave your mother, your father. You're going to have to leave your place of work. Um, whoever puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not worthy of me. He, he talks about the fact that no one goes to war without knowing how many fighting men he has in order to be able to complete the war. No one builds a tower without knowing that he has enough bricks to finish it. Even Jesus is saying, guys, I want you to come to me, but understand that it's difficult. Remember last week? Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part of me. He's not making this easier for people. He's not sugarcoating this. There's in no way that Jesus is trying to hide the reality of trial and suffering in the Christian life. He's not. Just like Naomi is doing this for Ruth and Orpah. Uh, I mean, I'm intrigued by the amount of times the disciples come to Jesus and say, did you know that the Pharisees were offended by what you said? I, I'm glad there's no response of Jesus, because I think it would be, you think? You think they were offended? Gee, I'm so glad you got the memo, you know? Part of our challenge is also to help people count the cost, not only in terms of their eternal destiny, uh, but even in this, in, in this group, the, the Christians went to a friend of mine, and they had an idea for a business. Uh, and they laid out this idea for a business, and they came back, and I said, how was it? And he said, he just killed our dream, you know. <laughs> Why? Because he showed them the reality of what it would take to build this dream. And unfortunately, for most of us, we live in this um, idea that if you are for me and you want me to succeed, you're never going to say, Chris, are you sure? This is going to take a lot from you. This is going to cost you a lot. This is going to be difficult for you to achieve. Are you sure you want to go through that sacrifice? No, we just want to be patted on the back, and we want to be rah-rah'd. But the reality is Naomi said, 
girls, this is going to be difficult. Return. Go back. May Yahweh deal with you kindly as both a wish and a way to end a relationship. It's basically a parting blessing. Bless you. Go off. Naomi tries again four times in verse 8, in verse 11, in verse 12, in verse 15. She tries. She tells them, guys, this is going to be difficult. Then she gives them the kiss of release. Their emotions were real. They, they expressed their emotions. The fact that, that they were going to miss each other, but they didn't use those emotions to manipulate each other. Man, let me tell you, I have had to give the kiss of release over 20 years of ministry more often than I ever want to do that. And, and the kiss of release in this sense is, is bless you. Whatever decision you make, bless you. Now, there is a difference between a kiss of commission and a kiss of release. And this is a kiss of release because basically what she's saying is you do what you need to do. Now, they lifted their voices and wept all of them. Is not this very kind of gentle, we just hug each other and, and you know, we, we put our, our heads on each other's shoulders and this tear rolls nicely down. No, this is like... <laughs> Have you seen people at the airport like that? You're, you're thinking they're going to hyperventilate because this is how they're crying? This is what it means to raise your voice and weep. There was genuine emotion. Goodbyes should be difficult. But both of us should be able to give the kiss of release to actually say, okay, if this is what God is calling you to, then I give you the kiss of release. The kiss of convenience in verse 14, when they lift up their voice and they wept again, and Orpah kissed the mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Now, this is a similar word to what Ali was talking about. The word abide is very, it's an interesting word. It's like a vine that just kind of um, does this. Um, <laughs> I don't know what the word is for that. But just basically intertwines itself so that you can't tell the one from the other. And so she clung to her. But Naomi says, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Now, Alp has gone back to the Moabites. This isn't the kiss of hatred. This isn't a kiss of betrayal or denial. It's just convenient. It's easier. It's better. Orpah's chosen to go back. In fact, the death of her husband has severed any kind of social tie she has to Naomi. She was literally socially and morally free to do whatever she wanted to do. And there's no direct or indirect fault finding in Naomi for Orpah. There's just a sense of you go do what you need to do. But what is clear is that religiously she was still a Moabites because she returned to her people and to her gods. Now what Orpah did was not evil, but a choice that is not evil does not mean that it's the right choice. And so oftentimes we look at the choices that we make and we, and we, and we want to pass them out into this is a very bad choice and this is a good choice. Well, some of the choices that we make about around better, easier, more convenient are not evil choices, but they're not necessarily the right choices. We don't hear about Oprah again, ever. But what we do hear about is Ruth, who will be remembered for having the privilege of seeing God work in and through her. And I won't tell you how because that's a spoiler alert, okay? Are we, make, are we open to making decisions that are potentially, not even directly, but are potentially going to help someone else? Ruth didn't know that her presence would actually help Naomi. Now, for those of you who know the book of Ruth, you know that that's how it turned out. But there was no way that Ruth could have known 
that her going with Naomi would have helped her, but she still made the choice to be with her in that place. Gee, I don't know. Chris, when were we in Aspen? Seven years ago? Eight years ago? Seven, eight years ago, Chris and I went on a bike ride in Aspen. Okay? We, uh, well, we, we, we shouldn't have, because what, what happened is we took, you know, those bikes that are meant for, like, you know, shopping, and you drop off the bike at, at the, you know, so we took those, like, on a mountain trail, right? <laughs> and we were talking, and, um, and, and PJ had, PJ kind of runs the advanced movement, the network of churches that we're part of, and, and PJ had asked me, he says, hey, I think it would be great if Chris could come to South Africa um, and take the leadership of one of our sites um, and lead that for a while. And so it was one of those times where Chris and I were talking about this on the bike ride, um, and Chris came back to me a while later, and, and he said, actually, actually, I feel like I want to stay. I feel like God's got something for me here. And let me say this, the idea of planting um, what, what was Salvation's Fullness and Mercy Commons, it wasn't on the radar, but there was a sense in which Chris was saying, I actually feel like staying would be better. Now, we want to be a multiplying church that sends people out to plant churches to affect the world by the building of New Testament churches, but sometimes the best idea is to go with someone where you don't necessarily know or to stay. And those are some of the things that we need to ask God for the wisdom to be able to discern. Ruth takes the embrace of sacrifice. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Our relationships these days are social collateral. Um, in, in fact, even in the church, we want to be friends with a person that makes us look cooler. Uh, or we want to be friends with a person who has the greater parties. Or we want to be friends with a person that has a, a holiday home and will invite us to go to St. Louis Obispo and have their holiday home. Or we want to be friends with someone whose dad has a boat and wants to take us wakeboarding. Thanks, Neil. You know? So, so you know, we, we, want to, we want our friendships to have some kind of collateral. But actually what we see in this is that we don't steward our relationships as gifts of God. We, we don't see them as opportunities to display the gospel, which is, which is exactly what was happening here with Ruth and Naomi. They could not do anything for each other. Literally, they're, they're both two widows. Ruth is a Moabitess. At least Naomi is actually um, Jewish. So she's going back to a place where she'll be welcomed, but Ruth is not even going... She's going back to a place where she'll be hated. The only reason she's doing that is because of the depth of relationship she has with Naomi. Jesus tells us that the stewardship of our gifts is an apologetic to the world. By this will all men know that you are my disciples, by the love you have one for another. We tend not to value our covenantal relationships because back then those relationships were necessary. It provided food. It provided shelter. It provided security. It provided an ability to trade. Now those things are gone, and now we value our individual goals higher than our covenantal relationships. What can I get out of this? Jesus challenges us when he says, men, when you throw a party, don't throw a party for the people who invite you back. Throw a party for those that can't invite you back. And so our relationships, we need to have a look at that, even in the context of our community, is are we just using them for social collateral? 
Different levels of relationships will have different levels of sacrifice. But all covenantal relationships will have some level of sacrifice. She clung to her. But now this is the thing that I want us to see. She clung to Naomi physically, but what she is clinging to is Yahweh. In verse 17, she says, Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord Yahweh do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. The covenant she's making is in the name of Yahweh. She's now become a Yahweh follower. Otherwise, you wouldn't make a covenant in the name of Yahweh. She's basically saying, I'm making a covenant in the name of Yahweh. I'm choosing to place myself under His protection and judgment. And if I don't continue with you, may He judge me on that. Man, clinging is so difficult when your mother-in-law is saying, no, but look, but look, Orpah's gone. It's okay. You can go. These days, clinging is made so much more difficult by social media. Because imagine Ruth, right? She's sitting there in the barley field on her phone, flipping through Instagram, right? And she's like, oh my goodness. Oh, Opa's got a husband and two children. And look, she looks amazing. She has her own Etsy store. Her children look like models. And here I am picking up grain off the dirt. Now, the challenge with us that Ruth never had is she probably never heard from Opa again, period. The problem we have is when, when God calls us to cling to something that is more difficult and sacrificial and covenantal, we have a constant daily reminder in our back pocket about how good life is if you don't make that choice. At least, at least on the surface level. And we are constantly reminded that the kiss of convenience is actually better than the hug of sacrifice. We have to realize that, that clinging to requires that we give our membership of the group that is important to us over. She was no longer a Moabitess in her mind. She was no longer that. She, she clung to her. You can't have two labels. And, and this, we're entering a, a season in our nation where this is going to be tested, where your political label, your gender label, your generational label, Whatever label comes before that will be tested. And ultimately, you need to say, no, your God is my God. My, these, are, these are my people. I am first a Christian, a Christ follower, before I am anything else. And we can't have membership of one group and cling to it and be part of another group and cling to that. We leave our Father's house. That's what Scripture tells us. It's a dark time. We handle it in different ways through... The gift of bluntness, the, um, the kiss of release, the kiss of convenience, and an embrace of sacrifice. But our hope is also in a kiss. Now, a kiss shows deference. It shows honor. But the kiss I'm talking about is the kiss that in dark times led to our ultimate salvation. When I look at that slide by Gustav Dora, I see this play on shadow and dark. And you see Judas approaching Jesus, Rabbi, and he kisses him. The kiss of betrayal that identified Jesus to his torturers, the kiss that showed that Jesus was not his God and the disciples were not his people. The kiss that he meant, the kiss that meant that he had made a choice. The choice was easier and better for Judas. We don't know why he made that choice. He may have made it out of pain. 
He may have made it out of confusion, out of rebellion. He made that choice. This was not a kiss of passion or longing or love. It was a kiss of betrayal. It was a kiss that shook the cosmos. It was a kiss that led to our freedom. It seemed so dark, and yet God was working in that moment. John Wesley says this, I know that I had not faith unless the faith of a devil, the faith of Judas, that speculative, notional, airy shadow which lives in my head, not in the heart. But what is this to the living, justifying faith, the faith that cleanses from sin? What John Wesley is saying there is he came to this moment of revelation that because of the sacrifice of Jesus, that could not have happened unless the kiss of betrayal had happened, that this idea of faith would have just been something that the devil believes in Jesus, Judas believed in Jesus, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a deep, foundational, clinging, embracing belief that says you are the reason that I'm justified before God, that I have been cleansed from my sin because of what happened to you. The kiss that led to our redemption, when we thought all was lost in that moment, the unfolding of this spectacle where Judas comes and kisses Jesus, and yet we know it is the beginning of our redemption in the foreknowledge of God. He would be tortured, humiliated, murdered, but on the third day, he would rise showing his glory, showing that when things seem dark, God is working in the shadows. This kiss that led to his crucifixion, this kiss that meant the penalty of our sin was paid for because of the bloodshed on the cross, that the power of our sin was broken because he didn't stay dead on the third day. He was raised and people saw him. It means that we are children of God, not spiritually immigrant aliens looking for someone to take care of us. We are children of God that have been made heirs of Christ. We are not destitute beggars but empowered heirs of Christ. Patrick, you can come up. I want to invite anyone that has been on the road without feeling like they've made a decision. Remember when, when Naomi said, I want to go, and the, and the, and the two, and, and Ruth and Naomi, I mean, Ruth and um, Orpah followed her I want to invite you that if you feel like, I don't know that I've ever actually made a choice. I don't know that I've ever actually sat there and thought, well, this is going to be costly, but I actually want to make a covenantal choice that your God will be my God. That, that this kiss of betrayal that Jesus went through, which led to his death, resurrection, and ascension, is where I want to live. Those are my people. I also want to invite us, Mercy Commons, to start wasting our energy on why this is happening and start investing our energy on, God, what are you doing? Can we regularly count the cost? Jesus says this time after time after time. Can we regularly count the cost? And can we, if we need to, repent of the kiss of convenience before it becomes a kiss of betrayal? Let's pray. And Jesus, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for your forceful invitation to us. 
I want to thank you that you have said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. But then you also said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And so, Father, even in that invitation, we know that there is rest for our weary souls, but we also know there is a yoke that we are to carry, but it's easier because we carry it with you. And I want to pray for the men and women in this room. I want to pray for those that have, that have yet to come to you and yet, yet to say, I'm coming to Jesus, I'm laying my burden down, I'm weary, I need rest. I also want to pray for those that have walked with you a while and are feeling that are feeling like they've taken the yoke, but they're trying to carry it on their own. God, I want to pray that, that you would help us. I want to pray, my God, in these dark times, as we respond to you, that your spirit would minister. I want to pray that even in the words of the song that we're going to sing, that when darkness seems to hide your face, that we would rest on your unchanging grace. Minister to us as we respond to you. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.